The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone, so let's uh, carry on where we left off this morning. And uh, we have just started out on the uh, Sabhasava Suttas, all the defilements, and looking at some of the background. And uh, one of the main aspects of this sutta is about how Yoniso Manasikara, wise attention or um, proper attention, how that works. Yeah, you can see this is how the whole sutta is introduced which means that this is kind of the topic of the sutta, how to, be, how to uh, attend wisely to things, uh, which really means how to think wisely, how to act wisely, all of these things comes from that attention. Uh, so um, then, uh, as I just mentioned, just before we left off, the, you have these seven ways, if you like, or seven aspects to this here. Uh, uh, the defilements to be given up by seeing, by restraint, yeah. Uh, again, very briefly, seeing just means insight, and it can mean insight in many different levels. But it specifically also means the insight of stream entry. Yeah, when you see things fully. Yeah. So seeing is a very important part. In other words, yeah, dasana seeing is a synonym for wisdom or insight. Uh, restraint. Uh, and and uh, so this is one of those very important aspects of the Buddhist path, uh, where the mind is not kind of be- being moved so much by the worldly phenomena that come through the five senses all the time. Uh, so you use yoniso manasikara proper attention to keep that even mind. Uh, yeah, they kind of keep the mind even. This is kind of the idea behind restraint here. Yeah? And then you have using. This is about how we use our requisites and monastics, or how you use your possessions, yeah, whatever possessions you may have, in such a way that it again it leads to progress on the path. Again, yoniso manasikara, wise attention in regard to your requisites, using them in a wise way. Enduring. Sometimes there are things that you have to endure. You have no choice. There are things in life which just you cannot deal with you cannot you cannot really change uh, and we'll have a look later on what those things include uh, and doing that again wisely is uh, again an aspect here of yoniso manasikara wise attention uh, avoiding uh, there are things to be avoided uh, stay away from the casino that kind of thing uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> i don't know if you've ever been to the casino but i have been to the casino just a couple of times in my life and uh, i don't think i know why this should be avoided uh, <laughs> then there is uh, dispelling, which means like getting rid of, uh, yeah, or, or things that have already arisen. Uh, you dispel them, you expel them from your mind. And uh, we're kind of slightly, I don't know if it may not be obvious to you, but uh, if you know the formula for right effort, yeah, you will see here that we are almost like going through that formula gradually here. Uh, uh, restraining is one part of it, which means you stop things from arising, negative things. Uh, and then you have the aspect of getting rid of things that have already arisen. That's what dispelling is about. Uh, and then you have the developing of the good qualities, which is the third aspect of right effort. You can see the four aspects of right effort sort of being included here in these seven. Uh. So the last one is developing, and it, and it is usually defined, as it is in this sutta, as uh, developing the seven factors of awakening here. Uh. And that really is about right mindfulness and right samadhi. The seven factors of awakening are all about meditation practice. Uh, that's what you see there in the last one. Here. So all of this really part of right effort, right mindfulness, and right stillness, right samadhi on the end there. This is what this is all about. Uh, and then how to develop these qualities accordingly. Here. Um, so uh, this is all quite closely related to the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, and there is a little, little chart table there, which I made, uh, <laughs> with some little arrows and things. Uh, 
this is my this is the kind of as far as my skills go in kind of graphic construction it's about goes that far that's <laughs> that's it so um, you can see it's not yeah anyway it sort of works so the idea here is that how these two sets match up with each other yeah so right view on the noble eightfold path uh, is similar to the defilements to be given up by seeing uh, seeing is like right viewer yeah so this is very similar to each other and um, right view is really what lies behind yoniso manasikara these are very closely related to each other you need a bit of yoniso manasikara to have right view and you need a bit of right view to have yoniso manasikara it's like a catch-22 yeah which one comes first and none of them really come first they kind of arise together and some people are just born with a being more wise than others and some people are born really not I said maybe I shouldn't use stupid it's such a bad word silly yeah or deluded or whatever you want to call it uh, so it just depends on what you have done in the past and all of these kind of things uh, how, how you journey through samsara where it has taken you to this particular point uh, but uh, usually right view is considered more fundamental so you have right view and because you have right view then you tend to think about things or attend to things uh, in a certain way Yes, that, so that right view becomes like the foundation for how we think, how we perceive the world, how we attend to the world, all of these kind of things. And because right view is behind this, yeah, it is, matters enormously that you develop your right view. This is so important because that will then support how you, uh, how you relate to the world, how you attend to the world. And this is why we read the suttas, because the suttas are just one big manual of right view. 5,000 pages of right view, except where maybe maybe occasionally something has snuck in from other places. But uh, generally speaking, it's just one big manual of right view. And uh, that's marvelous. So you read the suttas, uh, and you think, yeah, the Buddha is right. Yeah? And this is the, th the thing is that uh, very often this wisdom and the right view is already dormant inside of us. Uh, we know it when we see it. You recognize it when the Buddha says you should be kind. You think, yeah, of course, that's a good point. Yeah, okay, I should try even harder. Of course, it's good to be kind. It's, you know, when you see it and when the Buddha explains why, it's kind of obvious. Why? Because it creates happiness all around for yourself and for others. It's a wonderful thing to be kind. And I think we all know that deep down, but sometimes we forget it because of the pressures of the world, because of what other people say. And then the Buddha reawakens that spark inside of us. And this, I think, is so nice, in a sense, to think of it in that way. It's not as if uh, a teacher teaches you something afresh. It's like they remind you of something that you know already deep down inside. Uh, yeah, brings up that spark, lightens that fire again inside of us. Uh. So you read the suttas. Uh, right view gets kind of reawakened, and you start to think about the world in a new ways. Uh, you may already be a kind person already, but you become a little bit more kind. Uh, you see the opportunities for kindness, and you take those opportunities whenever they arise, because you know the importance of this. Uh, you see the opportunities for being generous. Uh, you take those opportunities, uh, yeah, uh, and you become more interested in developing the mind, learning how to think in a wise way. Uh, how can I think differently? Uh, and of course, how we think is very much dependent on yoniso manasikara. Uh, yeah, we think according to how we attend. So you learn to attend wisely. Okay, this person, uh, why, are, why are they upset? Why am I getting upset? I, I shouldn't say they are upsetting because already a wrong view already. Why am I getting upset in their presence? That's a much be better way of thinking about it. It's not the other person's fault. It doesn't really help to blame others. Uh, why am I getting upset in their presence? And you realize it's because you attend in a way that is not skillful. Uh, and you change your attention, and then you can have either you can rejoice in their good qualities because you know that there is a lot of goodness there, or you can have compassion for them because you know that they have a lot of bad qualities. Yeah, some people have many bad qualities. It's okay to acknowledge that. At least then you can have compassion for them instead. And in this way, you learn to look at things in a new way. So, right view, yonisomanasikara. Uh, wise attention, they go together, very closely linked to each other. And this is what you're seeing here in the very first factor, right view and defilements to be given up by seeing. Yeah. These are very closely related to each other. Specifically, it refers to stream entry in this particular case. Uh, we shall see that later on because that's how it is defined in this particular sutta, but it can be expanded really to 
involve anything that has to do with right view, really. And then comes right effort. So what happened to all the other factors of the Noble Eightfold Path? What happened to right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood? Does it mean that that doesn't really matter so much? It's kind of basic stuff. We already finished with that. Don't have to worry about that. And the answer is no, because what is happening here, again, this is really the path that starts with being a stream entry, right? Uh, that's what kind of the point of giving, defilements giving up by seeing is. And because a stream entry has already perfected sila, they are called sila sam- sampada, uh, yeah, accomplished in sila, uh, it means that you go straight to right effort. Uh, and that's why that is missing there. Uh. But um, I'm going to look very briefly at those factors anyway, because I think they are really important and very inspiring. So we're going to have a look at them briefly. But uh, the... Uh, Emphasis on this retreat is going to be on right effort, uh, yeah, in, in specifically, uh, because that really, I think, is uh, one of the most important areas of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh. So they are not there, they're taken out, but uh, then um, instead we have a large number of factors that uh, uh, fit under right effort, yeah, again, restraining, using, enduring, avoiding, and dispelling. All of that fits under right effort. And all of those are really about keeping the mind balanced, uh, not allowing the mind to become too involved in the world or too upset about things, uh, but keeping that evenness of the mind, having that sense of perspective, standing back, having the power of mindfulness, uh, which is uh, this uh, called the adipateya in the sutta, as the lordship of mindfulness, uh, which then becomes kind of the lord of the mind, uh, ensuring that you are balanced and you are wise in what you're doing. Yeah. So uh, that is um, that uh, the spelling, and then the last one, the giving up by development again, that is equivalent to right mindfulness and right stillness. Uh, yeah, samma samadhi and samma sati, uh, because that is the seven factors of awakening. Uh, and uh, if you don't know what they are, the first one is a sati sambojanga, and the sambojanga is factor of awakening. Uh, sambojanga, yeah, factor of awakening. Uh, anga, yeah. And um, uh, sati mindfulness. Yes, yeah, so the first one of these seven is the mindfulness factor of awakening, and the last one is the upeka sambojanga. The second last one uh, is the samadhi sambojanga. So these are stillness. Yeah, the samadhi on the path, and all the factors in between is like an expansion on the path. How to go from mindfulness to samadhi? Yeah. Because that is kind of what meditation is about. Meditation is all about how to move from mindfulness to samadhi. What are the factors in between there? Uh, and uh, there's a lot of suttas that talk about that. It's a very interesting area. It is uh, That is where the Anapanasati sutta comes in, the mindfulness of breathing. That's where the sutta I was talking about yesterday, the Chaitana sutta, which says that there is no intention or will required for the path to work. It works automatically. That is what that is about. Uh, all about that sequence from sati to samadhi. Sati, mindfulness, samadhi is stillness, the deep meditations of the mind. Uh, please, uh, you know, please kind of, uh, if, you, if I use too many Pali words without explaining, please let me know because uh, sometimes I, I don't even know that I'm doing it. It just kind of happens automatically after a while. Uh. Samadhi, sometimes translated as concentration. Uh, but that has been banned by certain monks that I, I live in dependence on that monk, so I have to be very careful what I say. <laughs> if I use the wrong word, and I, I might no longer have any livelihood. Or <laughs> so I have to be careful. Stillness is much better. It's, it's a very good point. Yeah, that concentration is about forcing the mind. And so I think it's a really, really good point. So it's really worthwhile making. And I, I like right stillness myself. So there you are. That is the connection between the Noble Eightfold Path and the Sabhasava Sutta. That's how those things work together. Yeah. Okay. So. Then we have a little sutta which is uh, taken from the Devata Sangyutta. Yeah, the Sangyutta Nikaya, the uh, connected 
discourses of the Buddha. And this is the first chapter in the connected discourses, and it's called the Devata Sangyutta. Devata means like gods, yeah, devas, uh, kind of heavenly beings, if you like, uh, whatever you call them. Uh. And this is the 46th Sutta of the Devata Sangyutta. And this is all verse. The entire Devata Sangyutta is, maybe there's a few lines of prose in there, but basically it's all verse. And uh, if you are, in, if you like inspiring verse, I love inspiring verse. So if you're a bit like me, you may want to have a look at that because actually it's quite inspiring. A lot of that. Uh, remember that Dhamma is about two things. One is about getting information, yeah, so you know what the teachings are about. Uh, but another part of Dhamma is to be inspired, yeah, to feel, yay, the Dhamma. Dhamma is the best. <laughs> yeah, this is what the, this, and both of these matter enormously. One is like for the intellect; the other one is for the heart. And the faith in Buddhism has precisely those two aspects. It has about confidence in the teachings, uh, but also the joy that arises from ha having that confidence in something very powerful and beautiful. So both verse and prose have their place uh, on this path, and inspiration has as well as understanding these things. Uh. So this particular sutta is called Nymphs, Achara, Acharas. Are, I don't know if the nymphs are necessarily female, but uh, uh, in this particular case they seem to be, but uh, uh, it doesn't really, it, it, that's not kind of a requirement here. So uh, this little sutta is basically about the Noble Eightfold Path, and because we are looking at the Noble Eightfold Path or an equivalent, uh, I thought it might be nice to see how this is expressed in the verse. So uh, this is uh, this is how this one works. Yeah? Resounding with a host of nymphs, haunted by a host of demons. Uh, this grove is to be called deluding. How does one escape from it? The straight way that path is called and fearless is its destination. Uh, the chariot is called unrattling, fitted with the wheels of Dhamma. The sense of shame is its safety rail, mindfulness its upholstery. I call the Dhamma the charioteer, with the right view running out in front. One who has such a vehicle, whether a woman or a man, has by means of this vehicle drawn close to extinguishment. So this is a little verse. So, so what does this actually mean? <laughs> it sounds nice, but uh, surely it has, you know, the point of course is that it doesn't just sound nice, but you can give beautiful metaphors and similes in verse like this. And of course we need to draw out some of the implications here. So resounding with a host of nymphs, and then you have the host of demons. And uh, the idea here, this is the Devata Sangyuta, this is really a god speaking to the Buddha, asking a question of the Buddha, and then the Buddha gives this answer afterwards. Yeah, That's the, kind of the background for this. Uh, this is how it's to be understood. But um, of course, the idea of nymphs and demons, they are like the the pleasures and the fears in the world, yeah, the things that we are drawn to, the attractive aspects of the world, uh, yeah, and um, so uh, the nymphs are beautiful, the demons are scary, we are attracted and we are averse to the entire sensory world, uh, this is the problem of the sensory world, uh, and this grove, and this grove here is probably a reference to the Nandana grove of the devas. It's kind of the grove where the devas are running around amusing themselves. And uh, this is like sangsara. Yeah, the human realm is the same. We try to amuse ourselves, but often things get in the way. We can't really amuse ourselves so much. And this grove is called deluding. Why? Because all those attractions, all those aversions, all the fear, the ill will, the desires that we have in that grove, they actually delude us from seeing reality. We have this vested interest in the things of the world. And as long as we have that desire in our heart, the attachment to those things, you cannot see things for what they are. Yeah, and it's a very important point. I, you know, you often hear uh, people saying, "Oh, I want to both. I want to enjoy the world. I also want to have the bliss of meditation." Uh, yeah, people don't want to settle kind of halfway. They want both. Uh, it's kind of no, it's nonsense. I, it really is nonsense. But people don't get that. Yeah, because people think that you know that, that we want both. But the point is, you can't really have both. Uh, 
Because to be able to see clearly, uh, to be, have a really peaceful mind, you have to give up those things of the world because they are precisely the stuff that stops you uh, from attaining that happiness, from having that peace, uh, from seeing clearly. These things are deluding. Uh, there are attachments that draw your mind out into the world. Uh, how can you be peaceful inside and also be drawn outside at the same time? It's impossible. They are like opposite sides, uh, yeah? opposite things. Uh. So you can't do that. So one of the things about this is that you have to restrain this to be able to achieve the deeper meditation. And people say they want both. The only reason why they say they want both is they don't really understand that one is far preferable to the other. This is kind of the whole purpose of the Buddhist path. The purpose of the Buddhist path is not to give up all your happiness just for the sake of giving up happiness. Yeah, that would be crazy. The idea of the Buddhist path is to attain something more profound. That's the whole purpose of it. You give up something which is unreliable, which is uncertain, which has full of COVID, full of climate change, full of unreliable relationships, full of people that die and get sick, and all of these things. That is the world. That's the real world for you. So you give up that for something that is inside of you. And because it is inside of you, it is something you have some degree of control over. I don't like the idea of control because it's kind of... gets you in the wrong direction. But at least by practicing this, it's within you, it's within your grasp, whereas the world outside is beyond everyone's grasp, obviously. Because we are only one person among seven billion, how much control are we going to have over the world outside? Very little. So then you withdraw, yeah, that deluding world, you withdraw, and that's where clarity arises. So the grove called deluding can be considered the playground of samsara, the playground of the five senses. Traveling here, traveling there, well right now you can't travel, but usually going here, going there, going to China, going to Europe, going to wherever, yeah, and visiting all these marvelous places. That is the grove called deluding here. How do you escape from that? And of course, the answer is the Noble Eightfold Path. So this, all of this rest here is really a description of the Noble Eightfold Path. It is called the straight way. Yeah? It is the straight way. There isn't any faster route than the Noble Eightfold Path. So if you, when you hear about the Sixfold Path, then you're in trouble. Yeah? Or the Sevenfold Path, or the Ninefold, even the Ninefold Path might be a bit dodgy. But the Eightfold Path, that is the one that you want to look out for. That is called the straight way. And I always like to say that uh, the history of Buddhism uh, is the history in trying to find shortcuts. Uh, yeah, that's what it is. If you look at the history of Buddhism, oh yeah, no, we have a better path. We have the kind of super duper shortcut path. And you know, don't go the Arahant path, go the Bodhisattva path. And then there's a kind of the fast path on the Bodhisattva path. And, and it, really that's what it is about. But the Buddha has already given us the shortcut. Uh, the shortcut is the Noble Eightfold Path. The rest of the stuff is the long cut. Yeah. It's not a cut at all, it's just long. It's long and winding, actually. So remember that. The Buddha specifically says in certain suttas, there is nothing that can be subtracted from this path. There's nothing that can be need, to be need to be added to it. It is complete as it is. And you would expect that if the Buddha is the Buddha, if he has insight, knows what he's talking about, then you would expect that to be the case. He has full understanding of this path. So be careful when you hear about these uh, these shortcuts, uh, because they usually are a long detour, uh, and uh, that is the problem. Uh. So fearless is its destination. The word for destination is disa, and disa really means like direction. Yeah. So the whole direction of this path is fearless. The whole practice of this path is fearless. It is sangsara that is fearful, and the path and the result of the path, they are the fearless aspects. No, no fear comes from the path, which is good. The chariot is called unrattling. Yeah, the chariot here is the chariot uh, of the, the Noble Eightfold Path, so it's unrattling, there's no kind of uh, noise or no problems with that path. Uh, the path is smooth, yeah, and it's easy if you practice it rightly. Uh, Sangsara is where you have all the rattling, the rattling of desires, the rattling of ill will, the rattling of problems. Uh, but this chariot, no, it has the smoothness instead. Uh, I think um, an alternative translation, which I saw, was... Uh, unswerving it doesn't swerve it doesn't kind of go back and forth yeah it just goes down the straight path 
and it's fitted with the wheels of Dhamma, or you could say the wheel of wholesome qualities. Yeah, the wheel uh, of the Dhamma, of the wholesome qualities, uh, which are the things that uh, allow that chariot to move forward. Uh, yeah, without the wheels, uh, without the right effort of good qualities, uh, that chariot kind of is stuck. So these are the wheels that gives the energy to this path that moves it forward. Uh, energy and right effort are two, often two things that are kind of seen together on the path. Uh. And then you get this nice idea, the sense of shame is its safety rail. Uh. Yeah, why is that? Because, uh, uh, you know, in Buddhism we talk about hiri and otappa, uh, and hiri is translated as shame, and I think that is a fair, fair translation. You can also translate it as conscience, uh, yeah, conscience and shame. Uh. And otapa is the fear of the consequences of what you're doing. If you do something bad, you're going to have to bear the consequences. Uh. So uh, it's the safety rail, yeah, it keeps you within the band of what is moral, uh, or what is right, uh, when you have a bit of shame. In the present day, shame sometimes has a very bad name, or such, oh, shame is really bad, or, you know, you shouldn't have shame, it's kind of a bad mental quality. But I'm not so sure if shame is always bad. Uh, if you have a bit of shame from doing bad things, uh, yeah, isn't that good perhaps? Uh, yeah, it keeps you within certain constraints. You shouldn't be overdone, of course. You shouldn't be one of these people who is oppressed by shame. But if it helps you to kind of guide your life in a little bit, uh, I think it may be a positive thing. I'm not sure if shame is all bad. I think it's a natural expression of human psychology when you do something uh, silly, yeah? And then you feel a bit of shame about that. Uh. So these are the things that keep you, yeah, you don't fall out of the carriage, you get on the right track, you stay on the path because you are, because you understand the consequences of this, both internally and externally. Mindfulness is its upholstery. Yeah, it's kind of nice. There is another sutta which also talks about the Noble Eightfold Path. It says that non-desire is the upholstery. Non-desire and mindfulness are closely related to each other. And uh, the idea with non-desire is that when, when we, if you have a lot of desire, your mind is always kind of uh, uh, in a lot of turmoil, restless, um, agitated, because desire is what, you know, it, it, it makes the mind, you know, into all kind of terrible states. The mind isn't smooth anymore. Uh, instead, the mind is kind of up and down, depending on the circumstances. Sometimes you have aversion. Sometimes you are attracted to things. Uh, so desire is a problem. But when you don't have, uh, when you have less desire, uh, and uh, a lot of uh, non-desire comes with a high degree of mindfulness. Uh, if you have a higher degree of mindfulness, your mind tends to be smoother. Yeah? You don't have those desires that buffet the mind around uh, like you normally do. Uh, you don't get the aversions. You don't get the attractions to things in the world. You have mindfulness. Uh, you have non-desire. Your journey is smoother in samsara. Uh. This is really worthwhile. Uh, yeah? uh, because uh, that smoothness means the path is so much easier. Uh, and your mind is kind of stable. Uh. You have a feeling of being in charge of yourself. Uh. This is one of those beautiful things about mindfulness, the sense of being in charge of your life. Uh, if you don't have mindfulness, it is your senses that are in charge. Uh, the external object, objects come in and bang, straight away, you, you have these emotional responses to these things. Uh, and your mind is kind of rocket, buffeted around, yeah, and, and you, you have all of these uh, unpleasant uh, mental condition as a consequence. Uh. So mindfulness is an upholstery here. It makes the journey smoother, yeah? So make sure you have thick upholstery, strong mindfulness, uh, the thick upholstery. What is the best kind of upholstery here? Is there any? <laughs> okay, well, I think it's somewhere else it is kind of described, I think. In, <laughs> in more, anyway, I think the commentary has a long, a long kind of uh, description of that, where, you, where you, have, you have various kind of skins and various kind of, you know, nice cushions and kind of things, yeah, nice upholstery. That's what it describes in there. Yeah. Like comfort, yeah. Like, yeah. That's exactly, the, yeah, precisely. Yeah. Buffering. Mm. So... Uh, I think there's, there's a lot about that in the Vinaya, you know, because it talks about all the upholstery not supposed to use as a monk, you know that? Uh, all those skins and all those kind of those bad things, red cushions in either end of your, of your bed. <laughs> That's how you find out what was the luxury items at the time of the Buddha. They were, they were uh, people were quite 
pretty much the same as they are now you know nothing has really changed uh, things are well it's a bit more a bit simpler than now perhaps but the basic ideas were exactly the same uh, as you would expect i suppose uh, i call the dhamma the charioteer the dhamma the teaching of the buddha is really in charge uh, yeah so you get the dhamma you get that kind of uh, into your mind uh, and then that becomes the driver that drives in the right direction uh, it's like you are, like I said before, you become a little bit brainwashed. And that's good to be brainwashed, yeah? Because uh, it's good for two reasons, that we are brainwashed anyway. It doesn't matter, you just have to choose the right brainwashing. That's the one thing here, yeah? This is kind of, we don't really get that. We think that brainwashing is something bad. But brainwashing is just conditioning here. You cannot help being conditioned. The question is, how are you going to be conditioned? So you want the right conditioning. And so Buddhist teaching is a good brainwashing here. But it's also brainwashing in the more literal sense of the word. It clears out your defilements. Actually, that's not even literal either. It's actually metaphorical as well. It cleans out your defilements, yeah, which is like dirt in the mind. So it's brainwashing in that sense as well. So it's double brainwashing here. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? It's really good stuff. So the Dhamma is the charioteer. Yeah, drives this chariot of the five khandas towards Nibbana. Oh, I can't see. I just can only see a blur if I don't wear my glasses. With right view running out in front. Right view is the first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. This is what drives the whole thing. Without right view, there is no moving at all. And um, I don't know. I often think that one of the main reasons why people stop making progress and why they don't feel that the path is going forward, they don't invest enough in right view thinking about the world in the right way yeah they just meditate but you can meditate but meditate doesn't really give result unless it is combined with the other factors of the path and specifically right view why well because we have certain attachments in the world yeah we have certain things that we desire and to overcome those attachments and desires you one of the most important things is to reflect on those things in the right way when you reflect on those things in the world in the right way, then gradually you overcome those attachments. And as you overcome those attachments, the mind then is and allows, it's possible for that mind to attain more peace, more stillness and more insight as a consequence. So it's very important to bring these things together. And if you don't bring them together, that could be the reason why people sometimes actually stop. Yeah, and the path seems to kind of flatten out, doesn't go any further. So right view is important, uh, the very first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. So strengthen that one. Uh, by strengthening the very first factor, all the other factors are strengthened as well. Uh, yeah, All kind of driving uh, forward this beautiful vehicle of the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, the chariot of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh. So, one who has such a vehicle, whether a woman or a man, has by means of this vehicle drawn close to extinct extinguishment you can call it nibbana for short if you like but i like extinguishment drawn close to extinguishment so there you are that's what the noble eightfold path does for you there is another beautiful sutta about the noble eightfold path which i uh taught recently somewhere to someone i can't remember now where it was some um it's found in the magga sangyuta the one of uh, the 45th sangyuta sutta number four huh? and it's also a beautiful i think it's called the janusoni sutta it's a beautiful one about the uh, noble eightfold path it's a little bit similar to this one but also a little bit different uh. so now uh, we have looked at the uh, briefly uh, at the beginning of the Sabhasava Sutta and a little bit of overview of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, now I'm going to look at another sutta which I haven't really done before, I, I think, for uh, anyway, for a long time. And this is known in English as the Great Forty, the Chattarisaka Sutta. It's called in Pali. And um, uh, this sutta is uh, is in many ways quite interesting. Uh, it has content that you don't find so many other places. It also gives a slightly different view of the Dhamma for that reason. And that's kind of always fascinating. It gives a different angle on these things. Uh, 
Now, one of the things about the sutta, which is unusual, is that it has a little bit of what you might call Abhidhamma material in it. So it seems to have been maybe at the beginning of the Abhidhamma, yeah? that when it started out, uh, seems to be come in part from this sutta taken from, from here. And the reason you can know that is because the vocabulary, it uses certain words that are not found anywhere else, but are found in the Abhidhamma Pitaka. So... Uh, that's where you can see that kind of beginning of the Abhidhamma, probably coming from this kind of sutta. So I will skip all those par- passages that have to do with Abhidhamma. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know if you're, if you're used to me. I don't, I'm not a big fan of the Abhidhamma. I think the suttas are the, are the best because they are the ones that come from the Buddha, whereas the Abhidhamma really comes from later times. And there's nothing wrong with it necessarily, but I prefer to kind of go straight to the heart of the matter here. So let's see what this sutta has to say. Uh, Thus have I heard. So this would be the translation by Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi. So I can see it's a bit of a mix here. Sometimes I have Ajahn Sujado, sometimes Bhikkhu Bodhi, depending on, the con- depending on what kind of was convenient at the time, I think. Yeah. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jeta's Grove, another Pindika's monastery here. Yeah. There he addressed the monks thus. Mendicants, venerable sir, they replied, and the blessed one said this. Mendicants, I shall teach you noble right stillness with its supports and its requisites. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, venerable sir, the the mendicants replied, and the blessed one said this. You can maybe I don't know if you noticed, but you can see I have edited the text a little bit, taken out the things I don't like. Noble right stillness, yeah, that's not the original. That would not have been there. That is kind of my. It looks like Bikibodi has put stillness in there, but of course he hasn't. That's not how he translates samadhi. This is uh, Arya Samma Samadhi is the Pali behind this, uh, with its supports and requisites, uh, and. Um, This is a, a kind of an important idea because this gives us an idea of what noble right still, stillness is. And the idea is that, remember sometimes in the suttas they talk about wrong samadhi, mitcha samadhi, and right samadhi, samma samadhi. And many often people ask, well, what, what is that? What is mitcha samadhi? How can you have mitcha samadhi? Surely either you have samadhi or you haven't. How can that be wrong? Yeah. And this really gives the answer to that riddle, yeah, how, how samadhi can be wrong. Yeah. And this is uh, why this is kind of interesting. And, and that's why also it has the appellation here of Arya, noble. Yeah? It kind of strengthens the idea that this is right, samadhi. What, mendicants, is the noble right stillness with its supports and its requisites? That is uh, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, and right mindfulness. So these are the requisites and supports, right? Unification of mind equipped with these seven factors is called right, noble, right stillness with its supports and requisites. So this is what it is. Samma samadhi is the samadhi that has these other factors for its support. When all of these other factors are there, then it is the real noble right stillness. So um, that, that is what it means. And that is uh, it's significant because what it means is that if you, for example, you haven't got right view, yeah, then it is not really samma samadhi. And that is the distinction here. And this is, makes all the difference. Yeah? So if you haven't got right view, so if you practice samadhi and you are not a Buddhist or you are maybe a Christian or you are a Muslim or you are an atheist or you are whatever, yeah, really, it doesn't matter what you are. Uh, if, you ha- if you haven't got an idea of right view, then when you come to Samma Samadhi, very likely you will misinterpret it. You will interpret it as something else. Uh, so a, someone who believes in a god, yeah, maybe a Hindu or a Christian or whatever, they will take the Samadhi to be some ultimate truth. Uh, they will say, wow, 
this is good this is it this is this is god this god is exactly like this yeah all bliss all stillness no sense of self left yeah this is it this is god it must be god it makes just perfect sense that this should be god and because you have that pre-existing wrong view from a buddhist point of view wrong view that is you will then take read the wrong thing into this or if you are an atheist perhaps yeah you kind of reject everything to do with rebirth or whatever and then you have this thing, you think, wow, this is really cool. Yeah, this is what you can do with your mind. Uh, but it will kind of all come to an end when I die anyway. So, you know, it doesn't matter that much. But uh, it's good fun while it lasts or something like that. Uh, that might be the atheist view or the agnostic view. Uh, but you won't take it any further. Uh, and you won't because you won't invest necessarily investigate that. Uh, you will be happy with what you have attained. And this is kind of the problem. If you are a Christian and you think that you have found God... Why go any further? You have attained the end of the path, yeah? And the same thing perhaps with an atheist who attains these things. Uh, so you have to have some view that you have to go further. You have to investigate this too. Is it really, is it really permanent? Is it really safe? Can you really hold on to this? Uh, or do you have to actually go beyond it? Uh, and that is what you find yeah, with, when you investigate it, when you use right view and investigate these. And actually there's more beyond. And uh, so that is kind of the point of all this. Uh, Unification of mind, yeah, chittas kagata. This is uh, one of those um, uh, uh, words that define samadhi in the suttas. Uh, the uh, chittasa of the mind, ekagata, uh, gone to one peak, yeah, or one peak, ekaga, one aga, one uh, one peaked mind, and then uh, with these seven factors. Uh, so again, this is really when you become a stream enter. This is when this becomes fully solid because then the entire noble eightfold path is internalized. You have all the factors, but uh, uh, for everyone, you know, you try, you strive your best to get close to this. So you, uh, it's it's uh, true for everyone to at least to some extent. So this is the noble eightfold, the noble samadhi with its supports and requisites, and uh, now. We're going to have a look at uh, these requisites and supports, yeah, and what they actually mean in the context of this path, especially the first five factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, and uh, just to get those before we kind of come back to the Sabhasava Sutta. So we're going to start looking at the idea of view. Okay, therein, uh, because uh, right view comes first, yeah, because it is the first factor, so it comes first. Uh, but also in other ways, how does right view come first? Uh, you understand wrong view as wrong view and right view as right view. That is your right view. You understand wrong view as wrong view and you understand right view as right view. So that is part of the right view. In other words, you know that you have right view and you know what these things are. Yeah, this is kind of the part of the point, the point here. So um, uh, this shows you that unless you have right view, you have a problem because you don't really know what right view is. And even if you are a Buddhist, even if you have read the suttas, there's going to be a certain part of those suttas, a certain part of the insight of the Buddha that you're going to be blind to. And it's useful to remember that. Unless you are a stream enter, you're going to be blind to some extent. You don't have a right view. Even though you have read about right view backwards and forwards and up and down all of these ways in the suttas, there's still going to be some blindness there. Yeah. So remember that. There's always You can always, by practicing, you are always purifying that view more and more and more. And that is what is happening when you practice your meditation. You become more still. You are... Uh, the defilements are going down, then actually what is happening is that your view is getting purified as you do that. So all of us, anyone who is not a stream enterer, has this problem. Yeah, you, don't, you still have wrong view to some extent. You don't really fully understand what right view means. So th this is an, then one of the, the, the ideas about right view coming first and knowing that you have right view. 
But right view comes, fortunately, in two different versions. And one is like, if you like, the ordinary right view of ordinary people. And then there is the right view that you get by, you know, in deep meditation or whatever. And these two things are not entirely different. They are very closely related to each other. But they are talked about slightly differently in the suttas. And I'm going to just go through this fairly quickly because it is, I've talked about this before on these retreats, it is still worthwhile reviewing, but maybe not for too long here, because this is really quite quite a lot uh, in here, and we could go on about this for a long time. Anyway, what is wrong view? The wrong view is that there is nothing given, nothing offered, uh, nothing sacrificed. Uh, There's no fruit or result of good and bad actions. Uh, There is no this world, no other world. There is no mother, no father, no beings who are reborn spontaneously. No good or virtuous recluses and Brahmins in the the world who have realized for themselves with direct knowledge and declare this world and the other world. This is wrong view. Hmm. Okay, so let's leave that wrong view behind straight away and let's move on because wrong view, that's the purpose of wrong view is to leave it behind. So we'll just (laughs) brush it out of the way. So let's get on to where we really want to be, which is right view. So what because is right view? Right view, I say, is twofold. There is right view that is affected by the taints, partaking of merit, ripening in the acquisitions. And there is right view that is noble, taintless, supramundane, and a factor of the path. So I left that in there simply to show you that uh, this uh, slight Abhidhamma terminology is actually, this is where it comes in. Uh, and a lot of these words that you see here, affected by the taints, partaking of merit, uh, yeah, all of these things, these are ac- really are terminology not not found anywhere else in the suttas but they are the same or similar to what you find in the abhidhamma but the idea is still it is still applicable yeah to the idea that there is a certain right view whereby you are not yet a stream enter so you are going to be reborn and that is the idea here one right view does not lead you out of samsara it's only when it becomes to the point of being super mundane that it takes you out of samsara that is really the point here it's a very fancy way of saying that simple thing here yeah you have to become a stream mentor to get out of, out of samsara that's really all that it's saying here. we're using kind of um, later terminology that came after the time of the buddha so What is the right view that is affected by the taints, partaking of merit, ripening in the acquisitions? In other words, right view, that's where you will carry on with being reborn. And uh, again, same thing we just saw before, but now the positive side. So much better to focus on the positive. There is what is given. There is what is offered. There is what is sacrificed. There is the fruit and result of good and bad actions. There is this world and the other world. There's mother and father. There are beings who are reborn spontaneously. There are in the world good and virtuous recluses and Brahmins who have realized for themselves by direct knowledge and declare this world and the other world. This is that ordinary right view. And uh, just because it is ordinary doesn't mean it is unimportant. Yeah, it's really, really important. Uh, and this is uh, this kind of right view is really the foundation on which the path is built. Uh, and sometimes if we overlook the basic things on the path, uh, we're not going to make much progress. The basic things are the most important one. Uh, if you keep on doing these basic things again and again and again, uh, yeah, the path is going to become very powerful. Uh, and so be careful not to become one of these armchair uh, kind of uh, uh, Buddhists. Yeah, I, I, I nobody here is an armchair Buddhist. I know that you are far beyond being that. But uh, many people are armchair Buddhists. Yeah, and uh, I remember one of the translations for jhana. Yeah, jhana is a profound meditation. It's one of the famous translations. It was amusing, which I've, I think I mentioned that here before. This was how they translated jhana back in the 1930s. Some of these gentlemen, English gentlemen translators, uh, they were sitting in the armchair smoking the pipe and they were musing. Mm, I think, yeah, I will translate jhana as, <laughs> as musing. Yeah. And so they kind of wrote musing in there. But, good. but the idea of musing, yeah, it's kind of a very archaic word. Uh, I don't think anyone uses that word anymore except for on Buddhist retreats like this 
but uh, <laughs> the word musing means to reflect on something, to think about something. Yeah, that's really what it means, uh, and it kind of gives the reader the absolutely wrong idea about what jhana is about. Uh, so um, uh, anyway, so uh, uh, we need to get away from that. Uh, we not get away from it entirely. It's good, of course, to read the suttas, but not to be an armchair kind of intellectual Buddhist, but someone who really puts the effort into practicing these teachings. And you will see what you are seeing here is very practical, very practical, especially the first one. Uh, there is what is given, what is offered, what is sacrificed. Uh, yeah, how we, uh, our generosity, our kindness, how we deal with others affects our spiritual path enormously. Yeah. Of course, there are different ways of being kind, there are different ways of being generous. You can do this in many different ways, but the general idea behind this is very, very significant. Yeah. And um, you will have noticed that if you read the suttas a lot, uh, you will often find that um, generosity is the very foundation of our practice. Uh, yeah, the idea of giving of yourself uh, and giving up things uh, is very powerful. Uh, and uh, uh, very often the precepts or the factors of right speech and right uh, action yeah you will often see the positive and the negative you should not kill living beings instead you should have compassion to living beings you should not steal instead you should and there is no there is no instead you should there why because generosity is so important that it is its own factor it is talked about in the suttas in so many places and there are so many beautiful suttas about generosity yeah how to be generous how to give of yourself freely how when you attain deep samadhi to be able to attend deep, deep samadhi you have to have a heart which is completely open to people around you you're freely generous giving of yourself this is the foundation for deep samadhi without that generosity without that heart without that mind which is in the right state you cannot attain deep samadhi the stream mentor is a person who has that uh, generosity always there, always with them. And you can have some idea who is a stream mentor about how generous they are with their time and how willing they are to teach and to help out and always do things. It gives you some insight into that. And one of the really interesting things about generosity is that many of the words for generosity are also words that are used for awakening itself. Isn't that kind of fascinating? Some of the words that you find in the second noble truth, yeah, the second noble truth, the third noble truth, I should say, because the third noble truth is about awakening. The second one is about the cause. <laughs> I better get this right. So it should be chag giving up. Yeah, so it should be the third one. So, um, so and the, the, there are four synonyms used, four words there used there to express the idea of giving up craving yeah of achieving awakening yeah? and those four words are chaga yeah muti patinisaga and analaya and of those four words three of them are also found in roughly the same way in the standard formula for generosity chaga means like giving up yeah you give of yourself giving up yeah? muti means like releasing something yeah so you are give, you know, releasing something to others, basically. So in the same way as you re release when you become awakened, in the same way you release things when you give, give to others. Patinisaka is found as vosaga in the generosity formula. Patinisaga and vosaga are almost the same word. The only difference is a prefix in front, but the basic idea is the same. So these ideas of generosity, liberality, is the same idea as you found for awakening here. Isn't that kind of fascinating? In other words, it is a little bit of the same thing that you're doing. When you're giving, it's like you are being selfless. You're giving up of yourself. These are your things that you are giving to others. And that selflessness, when it is extended out to its full consequence, is precisely awakening. Yeah, so feel what generosity feels like. Yeah, be generous in a very pure-hearted way. And then you have some idea of what the awakening experience is like, yeah, on a very low level, but it is a similar kind of concept that is there. So this can this probably shows you why generosity is so important, right? Because it actually has some of the same fundamental qualities to it as the awakening experience itself. Anyway, 
So that is the importance of generosity on the Buddhist path. And just, I just like to mention these things because I think it's so important to be reminded of it. I need to be reminded of it as well. So I'm just talking to myself, really. If you, if you weren't here, I'd probably still be reading these things and to, my, to myself and maybe to maybe Ajani Sarano if he would want to, want to listen. We'll talk to, <laughs> talk to each other in that way. So uh, ba- very basic. There is fruit and result of good and bad actions. Yeah. When you do something good and bad, you have the result, results of that. And I think everyone knows that that is true. And all you need to do is be a little bit sensitive to your own mind. And you will know that when you do something good, you tend to feel good about yourself. Do something bad, you tend to feel not so good about yourself. Yeah, It's kind of very obvious. And that is the fruit and result in this life. And of course, because it has a fruit and result in this life, it will also carry on into the future life because you are making, building up the quality of your mind in this life. And that quality that you build up in this life will carry on into the future. That's why the Buddha talks about kamma in the three times, the kamma in this life, or the kamma vipaka, I should say, the result in this life, in future lives, and, sorry, in the next life, and then in lives beyond that, because these are all linked to each other. But the kamma vipaka in this life is something you can experience straight away. Fruit and results of good and bad actions. There is this world and the other world. There is rebirth. Yeah. And... um, this is a, so fundamental to the Buddhist teaching. There is such a thing as rebirth. Yeah, it really matters. If you don't believe in rebirth, it actually diminishes the Dhamma enormously. And you see this happening sometimes with modern teachers. They try to take out what they call the what they think are the superstitions and dogmatic parts of the Buddhist teachings. But what they do is they actually destroy the Dhamma. And they don't really know what they're doing here. And they end up with a Dhamma that have got nothing to do with the original teachings of the Buddha. So what should we do? Shouldn't we have some respect for what the Buddha taught? Shouldn't we kind of look at these teachings very seriously and take these things on board as being very significant? Of course we should. We should be very careful with throwing out things that are so fundamental, talked about so often in the suttas. These are absolutely foundational for the Buddhist teachings. If you try to read the suttas without rebirth, uh, the whole thing collapses. Uh, It is one of the edifices upon which the whole teaching is built. Uh, This is what the Buddha realized on his night of awakening, recalling his past lives, seeing why samsara is so problematic, is precisely why this matters. Uh, If you're not going to be reborn, okay, you can just chill in this life and you're going to die, it's going to be the end of it anyway. Okay, no no big deal. You don't have to worry so much. But if it's going to carry on potentially forever, well, you have a serious problem. The outlook is just completely different. So rebirth is so important. And uh, the Dhamma collapses completely without it. It's no longer Dhamma. There's no longer any awakening to talk about. Uh, There's nothing really there. It is just a completely, it's just a uh, pale shadow of its former existence. And so you can't really have Buddhism without rebirth. Uh, you're no longer a Buddhist. Some of these people, they call themselves Buddhists, but in my opinion, they're not really Buddhist, not really Buddhist anymore. Yeah? If you reject some of the core teachings of the Buddha, can you still call yourself a Buddhist? I don't know, some kind of pseudo-Buddhist maybe, but not. I, don't, I can't really be a, you know. But the whole point of Buddhism is to take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Yeah? If you don't, taking refuge means that you take these teachings seriously. It doesn't mean you just reject them. If you reject them, then you are not, in my opinion anyway, and I always get in trouble for saying these things, but uh, in my opinion, you're not really a Buddhist if you do that. Uh, whatever. So, <coughs> okay, there is mother and father. Yeah. So again, the importance of parents and the importance of looking after them in the right way, uh, doing the right thing by your parents, the kamma you can make in regard to your parents is very powerful kamma, both good and bad. Do the right thing, you make enormous good karma. Do the wrong thing, and you make really bad karma. A very important thing. And this is very useful to know. It means that you can, again, you can be a bit, you can actually improve your practice by just by changing your attitude to your parents, treating them with more metta. You don't even have to, it doesn't mean that you have to be around them all the time, but what it means is that you, when you are with them, you treat them with more kindness and more care. There are beings that are reborn spontaneously. 
And the idea here is to understand the extent of samsaric existence, uh, that you can be reborn also in the in, in a spontaneous way. Yeah, it means that the samsara is much broader. It's not just physical rebirth like we have in the human realm or the animal realm, but much more broad than that. Uh. And then, of course, the last one. Last one is really, really important. Uh. There are in the world good and virtuous recluses and brahmins, yeah, religious, spiritual people, if you like, uh, who have realized for themselves with direct knowledge. Uh, yeah, there are people who have deep spiritual insight. Uh, and what do those people with deep spiritual insight, what do they say? They say, this world and the other world. There is rebirth. That is the main thing that they say. We just talked about the significance of rebirth in Buddhism. And according to Buddhism, the, one of the main things that someone who is a spiritual person talks about is this world and the other world. Uh, that is what they declare. That opens up that... Uh, new view, a different view of the world, which expands our ordinary narrow view and kind of makes sense out of all of this, uh, um, you know, kind of puts things in perspective in an entirely different way. Uh, of course, this matters enormously. Uh, if you don't think that there are beings in the world who have this extra spiritual insight, uh, then when you hear the Buddha's teaching, you're just going to shrug your shoulders, say, yeah, whatever, and you're going to walk off in the wrong direction. Uh, yeah. Uh, you're going to walk off to the city center instead of into the monastery here. And they're going <laughs> to walk to the casino instead of to the monastery. Or the <laughs> yeah, this is what happens when you, <laughs> when you do that. Uh, this is problematic. Yeah. So uh, it's very important. And uh, a lot of that confidence and faith in the teachings of the Buddha, you learn by reading the suttas and seeing what he has to say uh, and building up that thing. And after a while, you start to get this uh, beautiful feeling that there's something very marvelous and amazing behind this uh, and especially when you meet people who have practiced this path for a long time uh, and you see the result in those people uh. so let me just quickly finish this off uh. so that is the ordinary right view it's very beautiful and really you could have talked for many hours about those things because there's so much to say about about that but uh, i think sometimes a nice summary it will will do uh. Anyway, so what is the right view that is noble, taintless, without asavas, uh, supramundane, beyond the world, a factor of the path? Uh, and here you can see the kind of Abhidhamma influence. Yeah? It is the wisdom, the faculty of wisdom, the power of wisdom, the investigation of state, enlightenment factor, the path factor of right view in one whose mind is noble, whose mind is taintless, who possesses the noble path and is developing the noble path. This is the right view that is noble, taintless, Superman, a factor of the path. Just a long-winded way of saying the right view of a stream entry. That's really what it is all about. So someone who has that right view, that is what that is about. So when you are a stream entry, your right view is established once and for all. And then you have no, there's no more wavering here. And um, then the very last paragraph there, one makes an effort to abandon wrong view and to enter upon right view. This is one's right effort. Mindfully you abandon wrong view, mindfully you enter upon and abide in right view. This is one right, one's right mindfulness. Thus these three states run and circle around right view. That is right view, right effort and right mindfulness. Yeah, so you will notice there that there is a right effort in entering upon right view. Yeah, you make an effort to abandon wrong view and to acquire right view. In other words, that effort is that effort. Well, that effort is reading the suttas. That effort is contemplating the suttas to align your view with the view of the suttas. And the very important question is always to ask: How does this work in my life? How does it affect me? How do I use this in my own life yeah, to uh, see things more clearly? This is so important here. So it doesn't just end up as some kind of a, a intellectual thing that you have at the back of the mind. Uh, yeah? And then you develop that through right effort in this way, by reflection, by studying these things and thinking about them in the right way. Eventually, they come out through the meditation practice and when the real right view arises as true insight. Uh, and you do it mindfully. You have awareness of what you're doing. You know, you don't kind of just randomly have views, uh, but you use this with full awareness and clarity in your mind that you move from one to the other 
following the path in the appropriate way here. So, uh, and this shows you how all of these things are so closely interrelated. Uh, yeah, very often we talk about the Noble Eightfold Path as having kind of a forward movement. You're starting with the right view, then all the path factors arise from that. Uh, and of course, that is true. There is a forward movement. You start with right view and everything comes from that. But it's also an interlocking of all of these factors. They all uh, work on each other. The higher factors come back and they work on the earlier factors. And this whole path is also interlocked in that sense. So it is both true that there's a forward momentum. That forward momentum is more basic because you have to have some degree of right view for the path to work. But then as the path works, the later factors come back and reinforce the earlier factors. And this way it becomes like one thing. And then when you become a stream mentor, it's like one big blob, the Noble Eightfold Path, a blob lodged in your mind. And then you have the right view and the whole path is right there. And you cannot really get away from that Noble Eightfold Path anymore. It's part of who you are here. Okay, everyone, that's all for now. <laughs> so uh, please uh, carry on with uh, what uh, has you see fit, as they say, and um, uh, have some tea or whatever later on, and we will see you back again at 6.30 in here. So uh, let's just pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha.